This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Say hello. My name is Shayla Stonechild, and welcome to the Matriarch Movement Podcast. I'm speaking to you from the unceded traditional territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. Every week on the show, I share stories of Indigenous women from Turtle Island and beyond to challenge the mainstream narrative around Indigenous identity and offer up a new category of role models so that the next generations may thrive. We'll put a spotlight on issues facing Indigenous women and explore how we can reclaim our voice, our body, and our spirit, and our power that have been silenced and stolen throughout history and humanity. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe on the platform of your choice. Now, let's get to this week's conversation. Tanse, hello, and welcome to the Matriarch Movement podcast. I am your host, Shayla Stonechild, and I'm super excited to be here today with Tanil. Tanil K. Campbell is a Dene Metis author from English River First Nation in Northern Saskatchewan. She completed her MFA in creative writing from UBC and is enrolled in her PhD program at University of Saskatchewan. Her poetry book, Hashtag Indian Love Poems, is an award-winning collection of poetry that focuses on Indigenous erotica, using humor and storytelling to reclaim and explore ideas of Indigenous sexuality. Her upcoming collection, Nadi Nizu, through Arsenal Press, is coming in March 2021. She is also the artist behind Sweet Mean, Sweet Mean, Sweet Moon Photography and the co-creator of the women's blog, Tea and Fatic. Welcome to the podcast, uh, to Neil. I know my, I know my Cree, my Cree language messed up your pronunciation of your book. Uh, so if you want to actually, so <laughs> if you want to correct <laughs> <laughs> you want to correct that introduction? I really will. <laughs> <laughs> no, everything was great. Uh, and you pronounced the book Naidi Nezu. Yeah. And I'm always like kind of laughing because when I'm talking to like people not from the res or people like that I didn't grow up with, I always say it like Naidi Nezu, which is <laughs> like very Caucasian. I have and to say. When, yeah. And when I'm like with like, other BIPOC people I'm like Nadine Zoo and they're like ooh <laughs> I know I, I definitely need to get that flavor through my and through my tongue I definitely do not have that and I even noticed like on the podcast itself um code switching how I have like my white my white voice <laughs> I know well code switching we we all do like my friends laugh at me because we'll be driving around the city you know in a COVID world with our Starbucks just like judging everyone and <laughs> <laughs> then I'll get a phone call and I'll go from like my super laid back, chill voice to like, hi, it's Neil Campbell. How can I help yeah. you? And I'm like, who is she? <laughs> Literally, I'm the same way. I'm like, okay, this is my matey coming out. Anyways, how have you been? It's been a minute since we've actually connected. Um, I think the last time I saw you was like, oh gosh, probably longer than a year ago. I think so. It might have been that like brunch down by the docks. Yeah, I like like two years ago. Wow. Yeah. So how how have you been? Well, 
like nothing's changed, but everything's changed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, personal, still in school, still writing, still a mom, still single forever <laughs> in a good way. I'm not bemoaning the fact. Um, and then, of course, like new book, um, surviving in a COVID world, seeing what that looks like, um, dealing with people who don't believe in COVID and masks mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. how that like low-key infuriates me and trying not to let it like just being like okay you're not in my bubble like yeah yeah you're not in my six (laughs) yeah so it's just been like a steady chill vibe that I'm actively trying to keep it at I'm not pursuing too much and I'm not pursuing too little just trying to stay mentally busy Mm -hmm. well you just had your book your newest book released didn't you Mm -hmm. that was in March so like this month Mm-hmm. It How is. Um, it? I will mention it for like the hundredth time if you follow me on social media. It is my birthday month. <laughs> <laughs> are you a Pisces? Or are you yes, Aries? I oh, you're a Pisces. Pisces. What same? I had no I, idea. This is why we vibe. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet. And what is this book? What can we expect in this book? Because I I have your first one, um, the love poems. And honestly, every time I read it, I just feel really single. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, we're using that as a quote. <laughs> Literally, like creeping your Instagram page this morning, I was like, "Damn, I'm the most single I've ever been." <laughs> and I want to blame it on the pandemic, but I also want to blame it. I'm like, maybe it's just because I haven't talked to Neil and got like her advice. <laughs> <laughs> just need that chaotic energy. Sometimes, like, my I feel like my trickster form is like bringing that energy around. Um. Going back to our original point, um, Nadine Zhu, like, you know, Indian love poems, and I find Indian love poems is the the welcoming into this discussion, right? Mm-hmm. It's cheerful, it's joyful, it's tongue-in-cheek, it's very self-deprecating, like, I laugh at myself a lot about it to invite other people into the discussion, for sure. And I feel like Nadine Zhu is the next step in this discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, if Indian love poems is tea around the table... Nadine Zoo is drinks once the lights have gone down. It's mm. a little more political. It's a little mm-hmm. more layered. Um, there's a lot more darkness to contrast with the joy. Mm. And I think it's like a really good step in the discussions that we have to take. Mm. And it was really written in a way that people who re- read Indian love poems can merge into Nadine Zoo in a way that doesn't feel you know, trauma-based in a way that doesn't mm-hmm. feel like they're getting punched in the head with all of our problems. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm leading with love, but I'm also saying there's still some shit we got to work on. Mm-hmm. And how was that process for you, you know, writing the second book? It was brilliant. Um, Indian love poems made me step into the world as um, a sex advocate, as an mm-hmm. uh, image for sexual desire. And I mean, that's multi-layered. And you and I have talked about this, like as a light-skinned Indigenous person, as a fat Indigenous person, I felt it really weird sometimes to be a marker of Indigenous sexuality. <laughs> and I was just like, which belly? Which belly is sexy? <laughs> like all of them? Cool. <laughs> it took a 
<laughs> but that's what I love about I, that's what I love about you it's just like this liberation that, like I feel like you're in your power and you allow other people it's like welcoming other people to be like hey you can love every single thing about me uh, regardless of other people's you know judgments and expectations that they may have completely like loving myself had never really been a problem mm-hmm. um, and I didn't realize how radical that was until I started combining the self-love with like sexuality and being like oh like as a plus size as a fat woman I'm supposed to be grateful to have sex oh right mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the fact that I wasn't grateful but actually critical of the processes was mm-hmm. interesting and brought some great discussion to the front so I like how you challenge uh, people's perceptions or maybe beliefs that they have about Indigenous people just because you speak with such like, not like uncensored, like not really giving, giving <laughs> shit what other people say. I'm like, not giving a shit. <laughs> <laughs> and so how has that process been? Like what... I don't know. Like for me, there's tools that I use on a daily basis for me to feel like in my energy, in my worth, in my power. I'm wondering like for you, what are your daily rituals or how did you get to this place of not literally giving a shit of what other people think? Mm, Honestly, I think I just had my heart broken Mm. and that really, I'll say, freed me up. It um, opened my eyes to seeing how much how much of myself I was giving my partner mm. and how much I was diminishing myself so that my partner would feel safer right. or less threatened. And I don't think that's new. I think when I say I lessened myself so he could feel bigger, a lot of women that resonates, mm-hmm. especially if like you're independent, if you're strong, if you live a life singly and do it well, this idea of, having to become less so they feel like more is Mm -hmm. not new Mm -hmm. and seeing myself and being like damn what who is you (laughs) (laughs) who are you exactly um so it took like getting my heart broken and kind of just really critically looking at myself because as you know I have a daughter she's nine now and kind of walking through this world in a way that I'd want her to be proud of me And understanding for myself, that meant I can't let other people's opinions about my body, about Mm -hmm. my sexuality, about my education, about my art um, affect me. As long Mm -hmm. as I'm proud of what I'm doing, my daughter can like look at me and understand that I'm seeking joy in these many factors. Mm -hmm. I was like, that's what I need. Yeah, that's really all that matters. What would your... Going back to your daughter, uh, what would your advice be? I had this question specifically from someone um, from my on the following. My following, she asked, "What would your advice be to your younger self?" Okay, you gotta understand. Like when I was young, I grew up on the res, northern Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. I grew up on the res. I was eighteen, and I think I was just always kind of different in regards to how I dated. Um, I remember at one time being 11, 12, 12. And having a Friday 13th sleepover and with like boys and girls that I was friends with. But I was holding two boys' hands on the couch. <laughs> and my friend was like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, well, I like both of them. So I'm going to hold both their hands. 
And she's like, but you can only like one of them. And I'm like, says who? That was my mentality. (laughs) Like, I like both these people. I'm going to hold both their hands. I'm going to go out with both of them. And that always kind of got me into trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Growing up in a smaller town where you're expected to go out with somebody, have five kids with them, get married after you've been dating 10 years. Mm -hmm. You know, and like, no shade. I I see Northern love stories and I love them. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't my story. Mm-hmm. And so like growing up, I think what I would tell myself is just to like lean into it, mm-hmm. embrace it mm-hmm. for too much of my youth. Um, I did worry about what my friends thought and I did worry about what boys thought. And I did worry about like what people I didn't know thought of me. Mm-hmm. Like why? Why? Yeah. I was literally having this conversation with my brother the other day. I was like, we're given one life. Why do we limit ourselves based on other people's perceptions and like judgments of us when really like we're given one life. So you might as well make the most of it. Um, And so growing up, because you grew up in Saskatchewan. Mm -hmm. And so what was that experience like for you growing up in Saskatchewan uh, on the res? Well, like I will note that um, I'm from Treaty 10, which is English River First Nation, which is boreal forest. So when I say Saskatchewan, I'm talking like sandy soils. I'm talking like hidden waterfalls, big lake life, forest. None of this rolling prairie wheat skies. It's beautiful. (laughs) But that's not what I think of when I say Saskatchewan. (laughs) Um, So growing up in the north, it's a lot more isolated than the south. It's a lot more you know, BIPOC, Indigenous people. And, you know, I grew up in a community that speaks Cree pretty fluently. And I took mm. Cree from grade kindergarten to grade 12. The, that being said, I still don't speak it. <laughs> I was like, wow. I know, like, I need to accent, learn from you. <laughs> my accent's pretty good because, like, I took it and I grew up around Cree people. Yeah. But, you know, if someone's speaking to me, I'm like, ah, oh, tapwe, tapwe. Wasmunya. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. I'm like, kagush, piggy, kagush. (laughs) (laughs) So growing up in the North, um, I think I had a beautiful childhood. Um, I come from a two-parent home. I have three brothers. They were all highly active in sports and arts. So we spent a lot of time at the rinks. We spent a lot of time traveling. Um, We spent a lot of time like on a boat and fishing Mm -hmm. and... Like, when I think about it, I realize, of course, how blessed and lucky I am. Mm -hmm. And then, like, turned 18 and I moved off the res, right? Went to school. Mm -hmm. God, I'm still in school. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I remember the culture shock of moving to a community where everyone was white. Yeah. And I was like, damn, like, I am light skinned, but this is white, white. Okay. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I can relate to that. I mean, I grew up in a predominantly white community, so I always felt like I was the other, like you do feel, for me, I internalized like a lot of shame and I didn't speak my truth because I felt so like different than everyone else. And I think that's where the people pleasing and the code switching and all that comes into is because I had to like mold to fit into mainstream society or I felt like I had to. Um, Going back to, you know, when you started going to school, Uh, for me, I've always had such resistance towards going into like colonial institutions because I feel like I am 
I don't know, I feel like it's a colonial institution. So how's it been, you know, getting your PhD and what have been the challenges and why, what's your why? What is your why? Well, I joke about this, but um, like I'm in my seventh, I think, year of my PhD. I'm studying Indigenous literature, um, specifically Indigenous erotica through uh, women, Indigenous women's eyes and Canadian Lent. And um, I have been in school on and off, like I said, since I was 18, post-sac, right? Mm-hmm. And we're at a point of my awakening where um, the university and people have stopped asking me to talk to classes mm-hmm. uh, because because <laughs> what you're you're too uncensored or I'm, what I'm too real. Oh. Um, I'm I'm not that like oh my god we all need to be here we all need to be doing this I'm like the more of us the better I'm like sure but now I'm just like you know what don't do it like right now take some time go get some life experience Mm -hmm. um and then when you come back make sure the university pays for your phd you should never put down money for your phd Mm -hmm. and you know just also know that this is trauma like Mm -hmm. i have been through like a lot of shit in my life and i don't generally use the word traumatic to describe any of it Mm. like well that sucked (laughs) yeah that was a lesson yeah yeah i'm pretty chill about it um, but then I think about like the trauma that post-sec has brought me and how it affects me. And I'm like, well, damn, <laughs> damn. Yeah. So like your writing has been pretty prominent in your life from when you were 18. Like when did you begin your writing um, career or your writing process? Were you always a writer? Um, I was in grade five. <laughs> funny story <laughs> like context i was in grade five on the beds and i was like they were like oh i'm just imagining oh. little to i had like waist length hair like giant like you know glasses <laughs> like the cutest little nerd i'm not gonna lie and the teacher who was white was just like asking the students you know what do you want to be when you grow up we have to fill out our sheets and i said a ballerina or a writer and she was mm-hmm. like straight up with me. And she's like, you know, like if you're gonna be a ballerina, you need to start taking classes. You need to go into training. People have been dancing for years already at this point. And I was like, I guess I'm a writer. <laughs> <laughs> and here you've been in school for like how long? <laughs> like those class, those ballerina classes are probably. I could have been a ballerina by now. <laughs> My poor daughter is a ballerina. She, oh, yeah. I've seen her on your social media. She has been yeah. in dance since she was three. And she sits there like, can I quit now? And I'm like, no, this is my dream. You're living, my you're like dream. living through her. I was like, when you're 13, you can quit. We'll talk about it then. <laughs> oh my God. I know. But so I decided to be a writer. And that year, I entered this contest for the Star Phoenix, which is Saskatoon's local newspaper. We threw it a Christmas story. And I wrote a very dramatic Christmas story about Santa coming to the res. (laughs) I don't know. What was Santa doing on the res? Delivering presents, but he kept getting chased (laughs) off by, like, dogs and, like, people trying to hunt, like, the reindeer. And, like, Jesus was lost. (laughs) I was 11, okay? (laughs) <laughs> and I like won second place. 
What? Really? I need to read this piece. I'll find it again. It back. And um, then I was like, oh, this writing thing is easy. Look, I'm published. <laughs> that was your first publication. But nobody, nobody like in the North kind of knew what that meant to be a writer. So I didn't know what it meant. Right. Mm-hmm. So I went to okay. uh, like writing camps when my brothers went to hockey camps. I like Googled and found writing camps and I'm like, this is a thing. <laughs> I'm honestly speaking about it. You went from your Santa Claus and reindeers to wait, this is an actual career. <laughs> I was like 11, just like, I got published already. I'm an author. <laughs> So then you went on to writing camps, and then what happened? Um, and then I found a creative writing diploma to go to for my mm-hmm. first year of college. And again, only Native person in the school. That was fun. And um, made some great friends, but still, that was interesting. And then, honestly, just published small things here and there, like little poems, little whatever. And like I said, it took a major heartbreak for me to kind of find that voice and write about what I Mm -hmm. want to write about because don't get me wrong after the heartbreak like I was I was a petty bitch and (laughs) (laughs) I wrote poetry about the persons that Mm -hmm. was very negative and very hate-filled and very like sneering Mm -hmm. and I was just like this isn't helping me this isn't healing me this isn't making me feel good this doesn't give me joy mm-hmm. and I needed joy. I needed joy. So then once I kind of started looking again for the light in my life and finding it through that very, you know, elementary flirtation, like learning how to flirt again after being taken mm-hmm. for 12 years, learning mm-hmm. what a date is, mm-hmm. <laughs> understanding that native people don't date. <laughs> They literally just like move in, <laughs> move in, have a baby, and then get married. Exactly. And, um, you know, dating non Indigenous and white people for the first time and facing my own biases and prejudice. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, once sex and all that fun stuff became <laughs> <laughs> involved, realizing that in my head, I was just a very small town girl when it came to sexuality and I was just like oh all these things that I had such judgment on before Mm -hmm. while I was like in this very safe regular boring ass relationship said with love um you know that's that's just not gonna work for me anymore I need to like expand my mind so there was like a lot of growth Mm -hmm. happening and it was only through all that that Indian love poems came about and the joy came about and the community came about because this is so relatable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like you can really see the exploration of yourself through your poetry and, you know, um, and through other people. And so I know some writers have this term, I believe it's called writer's block or like when you don't know what to write about. Like, so where do you find your inspiration, you know, for uh, the books that you're writing currently or the book that you just wrote? Tinder. No kidding. Tinder. <laughs> I'm like, you haven't got Hinge yet? No. Hinge is just too fancy. Oh my God. Supposedly you have to put more effort in so it's better. I don't know. This is what I hear. 
Like I've like looked through Hinge and Saskatoon and I'm like, it's just the same guys as in Tinder. (laughs) Language is pretty like prominent, obviously, in writing. And so there's a lot of language that I feel can only be described to a certain degree through the English tongue, through like the colonizer's tongue. Do you incorporate um, a bit of like your language or like what? How does that feel for you? Do do you speak uh, Dene? I'm no, like, just speak the language. <laughs> <laughs> like before I ask this question, as we just laugh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't speak my languages. Like my mom is Métis and she speaks Mitchef, and my dad's mm. Danny and he speaks Danny. Um, but I don't speak anything but English. But that being mm-hmm. said, um, I had Cree and Danny like words in Indian love poems, and I continued that tradition in Nadinezu which means good medicine in Denny. And mm-hmm. I took it a step further, having one poem translated into Cree and one poem translated into Denny. Mm-hmm. And then I had my friends who gave me the translation speak it and record it. So now I'm in the process of constantly just trying to mimic it and speak it so that when I'm finally ready to speak these poems out loud, I don't get roasted for my accent. <laughs> Yeah, well, I already got roasted at the beginning of this podcast. I could even say your, (laughs) so I'm already there. Um, Yeah, so what does, so speaking of language, then when you hear the idea of, you know, decolonization, or like the word matriarch, what, what do those words, if anything, do they mean something to you? Well, it's complicated. Like as a non language speaker, I'm here, obviously, for learning our languages and having the opportunity and privilege to learn our languages. Let's not lie. That's still a privilege. Mm -hmm. Um, But I feel like when we apply the term decolonized to language learning, it limits the discussion to those Mm -hmm. who have the opportunity or only speak their languages. And Mm. it takes away the knowledge that we all speak English and Mm. why can't this now be, this is me not, not necessarily being revolutionary, but like just kind of pushing the idea. Why can't English be our new trade language? Why Mm. can't English be one of those things that connects us instead of marks us as not Indian enough? Right. Right. I see what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to actually think about it. I've never thought about it like that. Um, do you resonate then with like the word matriarch? Cause I know some people do and some people don't. I do. Um, like I've jokingly used it on myself. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like people get, have feelings when you use that word on yeah, yourself. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I see, I see like the matriarch, I see the woman leaders, I see the femme leaders, I see our two spirit leaders, I see like all are like non-binary femme women and that power that they hold. And matriarch is as good as word as any. It's identifiable. Mm-hmm. It's a unifier. And I'm, I'm here for it. Let's use it. Mm-hmm. Are you currently inspired by like any matriarchs within your own community or on social media, in writing? No, no, I'm kidding. 
As always, um, Erica Violet Lee, if you don't know her, you should know her. She's on Instagram and Twitter, such an advocate for urban indigenous space and youth and ideas. And I think that's something that we have to acknowledge that like all urban spaces were and are still indigenous space. And that's something that she has just completely taught me that has been like, oh, right. I'm an idiot. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um. Ariel Twist, she's an emerging poet mm. out of Halifax and a positive sex like person as well, who has taught me so much about how we negotiate these conversations about positive sexuality. Mm. I know. Um, God, the pressure we're under. Should have had a list there's, already. No, there's so many. There and, I mean, I, there's literally so many, and there's so many that are doing remarkable things in the world and really like um, challenging like mainstream perceptions and mainstream narratives and there's this idea of indigenous futurism and so if you had to define indigenous futurism what does that look like for you i don't know what is indigenous futurism like in what context okay well let maybe let's make it a bit easier what does the future look like for you this year what do you have for 2021 um a covid shot a covid shot <laughs> yeah travel yeah, yeah reconnecting kinship the act of kinship and putting that and rectifying that again um stories like and taking my daughter somewhere um every year she travels Mm -hmm. with me someplace and it's like this journey this tradition that's something that's for me and her where we like meet up with a bunch of my friends and like the isolation of 2020 (laughs) like can go screw itself Uh, (laughs) um what would your advice be for the younger generation that, you know, maybe does want to have a writing career or does want to go to school? What would your advice be for the younger gen? I think for like an emerging writers, it's understanding that their voice is precious. I know when I was growing up, I was like, who wants to like read about the res? Cause that was my lived experience. Um, everybody, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so understanding that your lived experience, no matter how small is relevant and powerful and unique to you, and just to write it, write it, write it, write it. And it doesn't have to be perfect. And it won't be perfect. It'll be trash. But that's what editors are for. <laughs> True. And for those who want to go to school, you know, I love it. As much as I bitch about it, I love it. I love learning. Mm-hmm. I love the connections I get to make. And I love the opportunities. Like, for the longest time, like, this was how I traveled. Like, as a single mother... You know, I would not have the luxury of going to Toronto or Montreal or Ottawa or Vancouver mm. or wherever I've been, Philadelphia or wherever mm-hmm. without school. It was those opportunities that like let me travel. Mm. So mm-hmm. knowing what it's worth. But like I said, you know, go in when you're ready. School will always be there. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I think that's like another programming we learn is like we should go to school as soon as we get out of high school. But really education is always going to be there mm-hmm. um how can people support your work support uh your writing purchase your books they're on my website like tenielcampbell.com or on my instagram at sweetmoonphoto you know i have my links there uh nadina zoo has been published through arsenal pulp press which is located in vancouver and they have been amazing so you can order my book through them And then Indigo and McNally have also been huge advocates of the book. So you can order through their sites. 
so sweet. Can I go in store or is it just online? No, they should be definitely in store. Okay. Um, and then like, I think Arsenal has some signed copies. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Tennille, for joining me on this podcast and spilling the tea. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Hi Hi, for your energy and for your sharing space and also for sharing your good medicine in the world through your writing and your poetry. And I'm looking forward to what 2021 has in store for you. Ooh, thank you for having me. It was good to see you.